You are now listening to the June 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. We are in the process of reviewing all 39 kings who reigned over both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The last two times, we reviewed 19 kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. This week and next week, we'll review 20 kings who ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah. After Israel broke away and became the northern kingdom, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He reigned over Judah for 17 years. In the beginning, Rehoboam trusted God and was able to prosper. But unfortunately, once his country became strong, he deserted the laws of the Lord and his people followed him. Because of such rebelliousness, God then said that he would raise Egypt as a judgment against Rehoboam. Upon hearing God's word of judgment, Rehoboam came to his senses and realized his sins. He repented before God by humbling himself and turning away from earlier evil ways. Seeing how Rehoboam changed his ways, God withdrew his wrath. God extended his grace on Rehoboam and the people of Judah by relenting from destroying the country completely. After Rehoboam died, his son Abijah, who was also called Abijam, succeeded him as the next king. He reigned over Judah for three years. Abijah was a victorious king who won the war against the northern kingdom of Israel by trusting in God. But when things settled down and a peaceful time arrived, he changed his ways and departed from God. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Though Abijah did evil, God, remembering his promise with David, allowed his son Asa to become the third king of Judah after Abijah. Asa was a good king. He put his trust in the word of God. The Bible assesses him as the king who was honest, righteous, and did right in the sight of God. Asa removed idols once he became king and urged all the people of Judah, including himself, to seek the Lord and follow God's law and commandments. Asa sought God in a war, and God delivered him. Unlike other kings who did evil when they were in peace, Asa sought God even more after he won the war. Asa and his people made a covenant to seek the Lord with all their hearts and all their souls. But unfortunately, toward the end of his life, Asa made bad choices and fell away from the grace of God. Asa made a mistake by relying on Ben-Hadad, king of a foreign country, in an attempt to divert a war with Basha, king of Israel. When the seer Hanani delivered God's word, instead of listening to God's word, he made the unfortunate decision of putting Hanani in a prison. Later, when he became ill and his life was in danger, even then, Asa was still too proud and did not turn to God. But God still kept his promise to David about seating his descendants on the throne. Asa's son, Jehoshaphat, became the fourth king of Judah. Jehoshaphat fought spiritual battles throughout his reign. After he became king, he reformed Judah and instilled in his people the laws of God. In return, God protected Judah by preventing other surrounding countries from rising up against it. But Jehoshaphat then made a critical mistake. He gave his oldest son, Jehoram, to the daughter of Ahab, king of Israel, 
in an arranged marriage. The listeners may recall Ahab was the wretched king who did evil with his wife Jezebel. After allying with Ahab, Jehoshaphat refused to listen to the prophet Micaiah and went to war against Ramoth-Gilead, only to lose very badly. Then Jehoshaphat repented and turned back to God when the prophet Jehu delivered the word of God as to why he lost the war. Later, when the Moabites and the Ammonites attacked, he relied on God and was victorious. After that, Jehoshaphat acted foolishly again. To seek gold, he built ships in collaboration with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did evil and did not trust God. Because of his alliance with an evil king, God destroyed everything Jehoshaphat built. Fortunately, though, Jehoshaphat then declined when Ahaziah suggested to build ships again. Though Jehoshaphat repeated foolish acts out of his own greed and short-sighted thinking, he repented and turned back to God when God spoke to him through the prophets who told him about his transgressions. When he repented, he set an example for his people, and his people followed him. After Jehoshaphat died, his son Jehoram became the fifth king of Judah. This is the son that married the daughter of Ahab. The Bible tells us that Jehoram did evil in the sight of God, just as the house of Ahab did. When Ahab's daughter came south to Judah and became Jehoram's wife, she brought her idol-worshipping with her. Subsequently, she caused her husband Jehoram to worship the idols with her and to do evil in the sight of God. She contaminated her husband and then others in Judah. But to keep the covenant he made with David, God did not destroy Jehoram immediately. Instead, God gave Jehoram many chances to repent and turn back to him. God showed Jehoram how without God he would be helpless. God caused Jehoram to lose wars and inflicted on him an illness in his bowels. Unfortunately, alas, Jehoram did not learn as God was leading him to. He continued his evil ways and eventually his bowels came out and he died just as prophesied. After Jehoram died, his youngest son, Ahaziah, became the next king. Ahaziah was the only surviving son when God rendered his judgment against the house of Jehoram. The Bible tells us that Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, enticed him to do evil. As such, Ahaziah was a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahaziah worshipped idols along with people, and for that, God raised Jehu and judged Ahaziah. Ahaziah died only one year after he became king. After Ahaziah died, Athaliah, wife of Jehoram and mother of Ahaziah, conspired to become the ruler of Judah. She killed all remaining descendants of the king and made herself the seventh king of Judah. However, there was a lone survivor. Amid her killing spree, Jehoshabiath, Ahaziah's sister and wife of the priest Jehoiada hid the one-year-old Joash, the son of Ahaziah. She and Jehoiada believed in God's covenant with David, that David's descendants would not perish. Finally, in the seventh year of Athaliah's reign, the priest Jehoiada made his move to inaugurate Joash as the rightful king of Judah. All the palace guards and the palace officials supported the move. Jehoiada gave Joash the book of the laws, anointed him with oil, and declared him king of Judah. When Athaliah saw it, she screamed treason, but it was of no use. Athaliah had caused a lot of grief for many people. She worshipped idols herself and made others around her do the same, like Jehoram her husband, Ahaziah her son, and the people of Judah. She eventually met death at the swords of the army commanders. With the help of the priest Jehoiada, Joash became king when he was eight years old. He was the eighth king of Judah. 
The Bible does not tell us much about how young Joash governed Judah during his early years, but it does tell us about his special relationship with the priest Jehoiada. The Bible records how Jehoiada instructed Joash, and Joash acted right in the sight of the Lord. While Jehoiada was serving as Joash's guardian and his mentor, Joash did right things. He repaired the house of the Lord and followed God's word faithfully. Nonetheless, when Jehoiada died, Joash lost his ways. He started to engage in idol worshiping and did not listen to God's word. God spoke to him through prophets and waited for Joash to repent and return to him, but he did not turn back. Eventually, God raised an Aramean army and dealt a judgment against Joash. Joash was wounded in the battle, was then killed in the hands of his servants. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the rest of the kings in Judah next time. Have a blessed week. mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Keys to a Godly Reputation, Part 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. We looked at how a young church, this young church in Thessalonica, had developed a favorable and far-reaching reputation. Their faith was literally being reported everywhere. It was making an impact all over the Roman Empire. And this happened not because of self-promotion or tricks or gimmicks, but for no other reason that their faith was alive and their hearts were sold out for the Lord. That's why. And folks, it is a powerful reminder in this generation. You're wondering, can I make an impact in this generation? Folks, it's very simple. Have a faith that is alive and a heart that is fully devoted to God and watch what he will do with you in this generation. I told you last week, I'm sure that the Thessalonians were shocked when they read Paul's letter to know that their faith was being reported, not just in the towns near them, but literally everywhere. And I mean it. Many of us have no idea how being faithful in Arizona is impacting people around the world. I think that when we get to heaven, many of us are going to be shocked to know that when we walked in faithfulness here, that it impacted people out there. But here's where things get interesting. This is where things take a really interesting twist in 1 Thessalonians. In our passage today, which is literally right after the passage we studied last week, we find the Apostle Paul, of all people, having to defend his reputation to the very people he had just led to the Lord, the Thessalonians. Imagine that. Now, to those of us living in the 21st century, the idea of the Apostle Paul having to defend his reputation is laughable. It is laughable. I mean, Paul is in the pantheon of all-time greats. There's no doubt. He might be, the, b- besides Christ, there's perhaps no one greater than Paul. In, at least in the modern, uh, f- from, from the time of the early church on. But in the first century, it was no laughing matter. Paul had enemies. He made enemies wherever he went. And those enemies were attacking his character and credentials and seeking to undermine the good work that God was doing in and through him. Now, let me give you one example of of what I think would have been one of the accusations that were brought against him. You remember in the book of Acts, Paul planted the church. And here's what it says. Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And then down in verse 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, why is that significant? Here's why. I'm sure Paul's enemies were saying he left town so quickly because he's a self-serving coward. He came, he preached to you, all he wanted was your money, and now he's gone. The first sign of problems, and he's gone. And while such accusations would have been completely false, they needed to be properly addressed. They needed to be properly addressed. So in our passage today, Paul makes his best defense. He makes his best defense, and honestly, his best defense was an easy defense. You know why? Because Paul had lived an exceptional life, exemplary in every way. And when you do that, your life is easy to defend. And it brings this point. Paul's best defense was a life well lived. His best defense was simply saying, look at my life. The accusations that are being brought against me only need to be judged by the life that I have lived. So it's on that note, church. It's my honor to take us to the Word of God today. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians, starting in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So church, hear the Word of God this morning. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
Amen. Church, may these scriptures come alive to us today. Listen, Paul's enemies could say whatever they wanted, but there was no denying the life that Paul was living. Paul's life, his ministry were exceptional, exemplary on every level. And it is a powerful reminder to those of us in this generation, as those in Hollywood and the media and elsewhere come after those of us who are believers with slanderous accusations and attack us, our best defense will be what? A life well lived. So with that, let's jump into the passage today. Paul starts by saying this, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, let's just focus on this first part. For you yourselves know. For you yourselves know, brother, brothers, why is that significant? Here's why. The genuineness and godliness of Paul's life and ministry did not come to the Thessalonians by secondhand knowledge. They literally had experienced it firsthand for themselves. Paul had walked with them, talked with them, preached with them, lived with them. They were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses to Paul's life. And as you probably know, eyewitness testimony is powerful testimony. In many cases, it's the best evidence that can be brought in a court of law. Eyewitnesses can speak with an authority that others simply cannot. Paul is saying everything you need to know in my defense, it's already common knowledge to you all because I have lived with you. You, I didn't, you just didn't hear my message from afar. I came into your presence, into your homes, and lived with you and preached to you. You saw me. You saw the life I lived, how holy and commendable it was on every front. You yourselves know. You yourselves know. And that raises an important question for each of us here today. What are the people who are in your life eyewitnesses to? It's exactly why Paul says his coming to them was not in vain. Because it resulted in everyone getting to see Paul up close and personal. And what the Thessalonians saw in Paul was nothing short of exemplary. Listen, when those who have watched us can honestly speak for us, then nothing can stick to us. Did you hear that? When those who have watched us can honestly speak for us, then nothing can stick to us. And that is why, folks, our best defense will always be a life well lived. Those in Paul's generation could say what they want, but they could not deny the life he was living. And the same goes for us in this generation. I cannot promise you what will be said in the days ahead about you and I who are Christians, but I can tell you this, it won't stick if we are sold out for God, living holy and pure lives in every way. Do you believe it? Let them say what they want, but there's no denying who we are. We are people who are heavenly minded. We have our eyes on the King and we're seeking him. We are the purest and holiest people in this country, living lives sold out for the God that we love. So, Paul says, hey, you yourselves know, you saw how I lived, but did he have any specifics in mind? And he did. The Thessalonians were eyewitnesses to a couple impressive things. The first was this. It was Paul's faithfulness in the face of persecution. Now, why do I say that? Because that's what the very next verse says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. He says that several times. You yourselves know, as you know, as you know. You saw it firsthand. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. This is a very important, so get this. Reputations are most vulnerable when circumstances are unbearable. Reputations are most vulnerable when circumstances are unbearable. In other words, when the heat gets turned up in a person's life, the true person comes out, the true self comes out. And Paul is telling those at Thessalonica, you wanna know why you can trust me? Regardless of what my enemies are saying, because when the heat was turned up, I was faithful. When things were unbearable, I was faithful in every way. If Paul had ulterior motives, he would have given up a long time ago because persecution plagued him wherever he went, in Philippi and everywhere. But even though it plagued him everywhere he went, his testimony was this, I am true and I, re I have remained faithful. Specifically in regards to preaching the gospel. He was faithful morally, he was faithful on every front, but look what it says. 
We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. If there is persecution coming against me because I'm preaching the gospel, the temptation is going to be like, well, let me just soften it a little bit. Because then that way, that persecution will turn into admiration. The world will like me if I just compromise the gospel just a little bit. You know what was so interesting about 2020? Is how a little bit of pressure from secular society caused so many preachers and churches to compromise the gospel. Specifically in regard to this, the social justice movement, critical race theory, and Black Lives Matter, which swept through 2020 like a freight train. It exerted pressure on all levels of government, on universities, everything imaginable came under intense pressure, including the local church. As a result, pastors, churches, and entire denominations caved left and right, as far as the eye could see, specifically in terms of the gospel. The gospel went from a message of being saved from the oppression of sin by the shed blood of Christ to a message of being saved from racial oppression through political and economic reform. That is not the gospel. It is a poor substitute for the gospel. And that is why it is not always a bad thing, folks, when secular pressures come to bear on the local church. Many of us go, well, we don't, we want to live in a country that's free and the church is not under, under any pressure. And I'm here to say sometimes pressure is a great thing for the local church. Because it's precisely when pressure comes on the local, local church that we can see who can be clearly trusted. Who will keep preaching the gospel in the midst of great pressure? Who will hold the line when the pressure is turned up? Listen, the church in Thessalonica wasn't the only church who were eyewitnesses to Paul's faithfulness in the face of persecution. Listen to what he says to the elders in the, in the book of Acts. He's, he's saying farewell to the elders, and he says this. Say it with me. You yourselves know. There it is again. I, you know me. It doesn't matter what they're saying about me. You saw me. I walked with you. I talked with you. You saw me behind closed doors. You saw me house to house. And you know I was a man of integrity on every level. And not only that, I preached the gospel faithfully. When the pressure was to compromise, I didn't. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. You invited me into your house. You saw me behind closed doors and I was faithful, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the gospel right there. That is the gospel right there. And Paul says, I will keep preaching repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ regardless. I will be faithful in my actions and attitude and I will be faithful in my proclamation of the gospel. That's why you can trust me. That is why you can trust me. So what about you? What do the eyewitnesses in your life get to see when the circumstances in your life become unbearable? When the pressure's turned up in your life, who comes out? What comes out? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. I can't promise you what's going what's gonna to be said in the days ahead. What kind of pressures are going to come to bear on the local church and as, on those of us who are Christians in the weeks and years ahead? But I can tell you this. Be ready. Be prepared. Because the pressure will get turned up. What do the eyewitnesses in your life get to see when the circumstances in your life become unbearable? Are they eyewitnesses to a life well-lived or are they eyewitnesses to a faith that unravels? Folks, it is a powerful reminder of this truth. Our best defense will always be a life well-lived. The people out there can say what they want about us, but they cannot deny the life we are living, especially when times are hard. Because when the times are hard, they're going to find us just as faithful, just as committed, just as much seeking the Lord our God in the bad times as in the good. But faithfulness in the face of persecution wasn't the only commendable attribute that the Thessalonians were eyewitnesses to. They were all also eyewitnesses to this, a man who ministered with the purest of motives. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly what the text says. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul was not there to manipulate, trick, or deceive the Thessalonians. Not at all. On the contrary, what does it say? We speak not to please man, but to please God. And proof that Paul was one who spoke to please God and not man can be seen in the fact that the very next sentence says this. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is our witness. It's interesting in this passage, Paul calls two people to witness for him. He says, as you yourselves know, you're my first witness. My second witness is God himself. I have a clear conscience before God that how I have conducted myself in your presence is holy and honorable in every way. As I mentioned in the very first sermon in this series, the city of Thessalonica was on a super highway that ran through Macedonia, east-west through Macedonia, called the Ignatian Way. As a result of this super highway, there was a lot of false teachers that often wandered into Thessalonica. And most of these teachers were financial opportunists who took as much money from their listeners as they could and then went on to greener pastures. This is what they did. Listen, folks, if Paul were truly in it for the money, I'm sure as his people, his, his enemies were saying, he's just in it for the money. He got your money, he wanted your money, and now he's gonna move on. If Paul were truly in it for the money, he would have surely said flattering things to the Thessalonians, things they wanted to hear instead of things they needed to hear. You understood that he confronted them with the reality of the gospel, the very gospel that is so easily offensive to people, especially to fallen man. He didn't try to butter them up to get their money. He told them the truth which could save their souls. He told them things, I'm sure, like this. He told them to repent of their sins, to count the costs, to lay down your life. He could have easily walked in and said, God has a great plan for your life. If you'll just sow money into my ministry, it will come back to you a hundredfold. He didn't do that. He came in and told them, what they needed to hear. And what you often need to hear is not always that pleasant. And here's a perfect example. He walked in and told them, turn from your idols, turn from your sin, count the cost, lay down your life and bow your knee before the king of kings. All these subjects right here behind me, these were sure to hurt his chances of financial gain, not improve them. Paul is telling those in Thessalonica, you want to know why you can trust me? Here's why. Because I spoke the truth to you despite the cost to me. I told you what you needed to hear, not what you wanted to hear. Again, proving, folks, that our best defense will always be a life well lived. And this should cause each of us that are here today to pause and consider, are those who are witnessing my life, are they eyewitnesses to someone who doesn't try to manipulate, trick, or deceive in any area of my life? Paul says, hey, I I didn't come to you with words of flattery. I didn't try to trick you or manipulate you. That's not me. But that really applies to every area of our life. Those who know you best, do they trust you as a person of integrity? That you never try to manipulate, deceive, or do anything of the like, but that you are a person of faith that walks in faith and trusts God with all of your heart all the time that you don't ever have to resort to worldly techniques to try to get your way or to get things done, but that you are trustworthy to the core because your heart is pure before the Lord, that my heart is pure before the Lord. Paul not only did not seek their money, it says this, for we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Listen, folks, Paul didn't seek their money. He didn't seek their glory. Paul never sought accolades, applause, awards, recognition, degrees, prestige. He did not care. Paul didn't seek the prestige of men. As a matter of fact, he did just the opposite. He was so faithful, he made enemies wherever he went. 
Paul was anything like the prestigious, loving religious leaders that Jesus confronted. Remember Matthew 23? Jesus said this, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi. Oh, pastor. Oh, rabbi. Oh, so-and-so. Paul didn't care to be called rabbi. He didn't care who got the credit. He wanted nothing more than to honor and to give all the honor, all the glory to the one who truly deserved it. And that was the Lord. As a matter of fact, our passage says that he did not even leverage his title as an apostle. His accusers could say what they want about him, that he was a self-serving, money-loving, prestigious-loving minister. But Paul says, you yourselves know that that's not true. I was faithful in the face of persecution. I came to you not wanting your money. I spoke to you the truth, no matter the cost to me. I didn't leverage what I could have leveraged to make things about me. I made it about you. And even though I'm an apostle of Christ, I served you with all that I had. And folks, the same applies to us in this generation. I can't guarantee you what's going to be said in the days ahead. But I can tell you that if we are sold out for the Lord, that if our hearts are in the right place, our eyes are on the King, our heart is with His kingdom. That if we're walking in faith in this generation, trusting God, not trying to manipulate or deceive anyone, but walking in faith, even when it's difficult, even when those that are opposed to us are slandering us in the worst sort of ways, calling us insurrectionists, and, and, and much more than that, that even then we walk with the purest of hearts. Our best defense will always, will always be a life well lived. Listen, Christians today are, we're ridiculed, we're censored. I've been censored on social media because of the Christian things that I post. I don't know if any of you have. And it's only going to get worse. The censoring, it's, it's amazing. We used to live in a land where you were free to say what you wanted. Who would have thought that that day has come and gone? And it literally happened with a click of the button. With a click of a button, anyone can be censored in this country. And who's being censored? Christians. Christians. Listen, if you haven't been attacked directly, you probably have experienced it indirectly. Coming through such sources as media, entertainment, politics, and yes, even sports. And I go, even sports, because I love me some sports. But sports betrayed me in 2020. Their true colors came out. You cannot, be a, you cannot bow the knee in professional sports to the Lord. You can bow the knee in objection to what our country stands for. You're safe doing that. But you can't bow the knee to Christ. If you bow the knee to Christ, you'll be ridiculed. But if you bow the knee in protest to what our country stands for, then, then you're a hero. As Christians... The list of accusations being leveled against you and me in this generation are long and grievous and include everything from being anti-intellectual to insurrectionist to bigoted to brainwashed and everything in between. And I can't promise you what is going to be said in the days ahead, but I'm telling you, put on your seatbelts, brace yourselves because there's a good chance it's going to get worse. As believers, we must never forget that our best defense is always a life well lived. How do I know it? Because Paul says to those in the first century, as you yourselves know, you are eyewitnesses to the man I was in your presence. But it's not just Paul that said that. Peter said it too. Peter, you know him. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I recently read of a World War II vet by the name, his name was Herb. You don't hear too many, you don't hear that name too often in this generation, but Herb. How many remember WKRP in Cincinnati, Herb Tarlick? Sorry, I don't know why I just went there, but forgive me. Herb was a World War II vet, and he tells the story of how he was held in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And he was under a, a the, the leader of that particular camp was extremely vicious, so much so that uh, for example, he tells the story of having to eat. The, the commander of that particular camp gave the prisoners what was called unhusked rice. 
and that unhusked rice as you eat it would slice your throat as it went down. So he would give you food, but it would be painful going down. But Herb and the other Christians in there continued to pray, continued to live faithful, continued to live out the gospel in the midst of their torture. And Herb goes on to tell the story that after the war was over, he had lost sight of almost everybody, but somehow he had heard word that the commander of that particular POW camp that he was in was found working at a golf course in Japan, at which point he was promptly arrested. And he was tried, and he was sentenced to be hanged to death. And just before that execution was carried out, this man said, I'm a Christian. Before I die, I just want you to know that I am a Christian. And he said, I want to tell you why I'm a Christian. Here's specifically why I am a Christian. Because when I was the head of this POW camp and I was torturing people, I watched the Christians and they were faithful despite how poorly I treated them. They were faithful though I mocked them. They were faithful though I gave them unhucked rice that that ripped their throats apart when they ate it. They continued to praise God with voices that had been sliced to pieces by the food that I had fed them. And because of that character, because of that honorable life, because they praised God and not cursed him in that circumstances, I gave my life to Christ. Peter says this in the very next chapter, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I've said it before, I'll say it again, folks. As believers, we are going to have very little control over what is said in the days ahead. Brace yourselves. Listen, folks, you stand your ground. You remain faithful in this generation. It may come at a cost. It did for Paul, and it did for all of our brothers and sisters down through church history. As they lived their faith in their generation faithfully, it cost them. It's our turn. It is our turn. Paul, God did not set Paul's feet in this generation. He could have, but he set your feet here, and he wants us to remain faithful. He wants our hearts to be on this kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world. He wants our eyes to be on that king and not who's sitting in some office somewhere. You keep your heart here. You keep your mind there. You keep your faith on fire for the Lord. You live faithfully in this generation. So no matter what is said about you and me, we can say you yourselves know that's not true. You know that I am a man of honor, a woman of honor, that I've lived a godly life in your very presence Even to the point where you have slandered me, I blessed the name of the Lord and I prayed for you. That's who I am. And that's the life I lived. You remain faithful and watch what God does with you and me in this generation. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Well, Father in heaven, we come before you this day. We thank you for Paul. God, so faithful in his generation. God, being slandered, being ridiculed by false teachers who wanted nothing but his demise And yet, God, his life was exemplary on every level. We think of all the apostles, Peter, James, and the others, God, who lived such honorable lives, even when, Father, it cost them so greatly, so dearly. God, we think of our faithful brothers and sisters down through the generations who gave it all in their generation to remain faithful to you. But Lord, it is our turn. And God, we as Christians are being called many things The slander is great, and it's probably going to get worse. But Lord, may we, God, exemplify in this generation holy, honorable, godly character. When we are slandered, may we bless. God, may we pray for our enemies and those that persecute us. And God, may we bless your name even when the fires are at their hottest. So, Father, as we leave here, God, may our hearts be with you in your kingdom. God, if not, raise our eyes and raise our hearts that we might see you and live for you each and every day. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. And the church said with me, amen. God bless you, you guys. Thank you for coming.
sand Kings and nations tremble at his voice All creation rises to rejoice Behold a God seated on his throne Come let us adore him Behold a King Nothing can compare Come let us adore Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of His words? of sinful men God eternal humble to the grave Jesus Savior risen now to
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello everyone, it's Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. We have only two more remaining sessions of Prayers After God's Own Heart. So far, we have learned from Jehoshaphat's prayer that we start prayer by worshiping as we call upon the name of the Lord. Through Solomon's prayer, we learn how to pray in awe of the Lord by looking upon the Lord with a humble heart. Next, we looked into a prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of supplication, prayer of repentance, prayer of fasting, and prayer of forgiveness. There is a prayer that combines all of these prayers. It is the Lord's Prayer which Jesus taught. First, we'll read the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The title of this program is Prayers After God's Own Heart. We want to see if the prayers we give are aligned with the Lord's character and will. We want to discard the things that aren't proper and ensure we continue in things that are needed so our prayers are suitable to give to the Lord. We want our prayers to become answered prayers. This is the purpose of this program. Jesus begins his prayer by worshiping as he calls upon the name of the Lord and ends by blessing the Lord. This is the model of prayer. For this week and next week, we'll look into the prayer Jesus taught and see what kind of prayer is a prayer after God's own heart. Jesus started his prayer by calling God our Father which art in heaven and taught us to do the same. It's not unusual for us who became children of God through Jesus to refer to God as Father. In fact, it's very natural for us to recognize God as Father. However, the disciples who first learned this prayer from Jesus were astonished when Jesus commanded them to call upon God as Father. It's because God was so holy and they felt like it would be offensive for humans to identify God as Father as if God were an earthly father. They also thought it would blaspheme God's sacredness. However, Jesus taught that God was our Father in heaven. God's Son, Jesus Christ, was born as a human baby here on earth. Jesus paid the cost of His blood for us who are children of the flesh and made us children of God. That was the amazing work Jesus did. A prayer after God's own heart can be given when our relationship with God is a relationship between Father God and us as His children. We should not think that God is so distant and holy that we cannot approach Him. We shouldn't only think that God is abundantly reverent and greatly fear Him. The important thing to remember is that God, who is so holy and reverent enough to be feared, was not ashamed to be our Father and make us His children. Jesus continually taught this concept to His disciples. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, he said, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he said, If you then, 
though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Being able to come to God in prayer as our Father is an amazing grace and miracle. How do you refer to God? Is God your Father in heaven? If so, you can share the issues of your life in detail without hiding anything in a more intimate relationship. Second, when Jesus characterized God as Father, He didn't say, My Father which art in heaven, but Our Father which art in heaven. This means God is my personal Father God, but at the same time He is the Father of our community, which is the church with Jesus as the head. Therefore, when we pray to God, we pray from our own individual positions, but at the same time, we must also pray from the position of our relationship to each other as believers. Romans chapter 13 verse 10 says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Therefore, a prayer after God's own heart is given when a community that considers God as Father loves and serves neighbors as oneself. When we pray for our neighbor's salvation, when we pray that their needs will be filled, when we pray that we may serve them and when our prayers are moved into action, it is a prayer after God's own heart. Why don't we self-examine our prayers? Among your prayer topics, are you praying for someone else? Is the range of your prayers only for yourself or for your direct family, including your spouse, children, or parents? If so, we must now broaden our scope because God is my Father, but He is also the Father of all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. I hope you can think that we are all brothers who share a common salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ? If so, our prayers will change. The one who gives prayer after God's own heart must clearly know who he is and his position in Christ. We must know that we became children of holy God through Jesus Christ. We must know that as holy children of God, we must not belong to this world. We must know that God is my Father, but at the same time, he is the Father of all of us who became God's children through Jesus Christ. Therefore, as all his children, we must love each other and be in harmony and do our best to bring forth the kingdom of God here on earth. I hope we can clearly know our positions and give prayers after God's own heart from that position. This will conclude today's edition of Prayers After God's Own Heart.
our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.